My name is Nick. And I'm Damien. And you're listening to the EQIQ Podcast. This is where the independent scientist and biotech entrepreneur come to find new paths to success. Join us as we discuss strategies to launch your vision, grow your team's potential, and uncover hacks to push your career well beyond what you thought possible. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Damien again, as usual, and I'm here with my co-host here, good old Nicholas. Say what's up. Hello, and welcome back to the EQIQ podcast. Today, we're in the studio doing part two of our two-part episode on different types of support for starting a new lab or a new company, joined by a special guest. Yes. In our last episode, we talked about outsourcing, consultants, and not going at it alone. We left off talking about coaching a little bit. And so today, we're inviting a special guest, Dr. Jonathan Thon. Hi, pleasure to be here. Jonathan's here today with us to share his experiences, insights, and strategies from his own career as an entrepreneurial scientist, as well to discuss the impacts coaching has had in the world of research and development. Jonathan is the CEO and founder of Storm.bio, a young and ambitious company whose mission is to deliver a novel therapeutic approach using extracellular vesicles for gene therapies. And this isn't Jonathan's first venture either. He was formerly the CEO and CSO of Platelet Biogenesis, in addition to previously being an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. He ended up completing his PhD training from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, which is pretty awesome because we get a lot of information just kind of gleaning from his journey. And that's kind of what he's here today to share with us. So, Nicholas, share with us kind of like uh, your experience with your ideas about coming from a Canadian background as well and seeing this transition from an entrepreneurial side point. Because I think this is going to be interesting because I think uh, sharing this perspective and then we can then kind of launch into Jonathan and how he's gone through this. Yeah, definitely. And I don't think I'm going to be making any friends through my my perspective (laughs) because I would say myself being Canadian as well, for those of you that haven't listened to the previous episode. I moved to the U.S. about five years ago now. And uh, over the past few years, and actually just recently, Damien, we had a conversation about this off the podcast, that I don't think I fit in Canada anymore. There's a certain independence and individuality and not to mention speed that exists in the United States. And I I think that I'm a little bit too aggressive to go back to the, the Canadian culture. And there's a lot of different elements that I think contribute to that. But one of them is just, it's almost like a stereotype, you know, it, it being loud, being fast, being very upfront. But most of all, I think there's a lot more tolerance for risk and that just starting a business, a lot of the decisions that we take don't necessarily resonate with, we'll call it the typical Canadian mentality. I I think there's something there with regard to risk tolerance and definitely there are different cultures. I mean, it's easy to conceive of Canada and the United States as being the same, very similar, but they're not. They're different countries, they're different cultures, different societies that value different things. And risk tolerance and perspective on entrepreneurship definitely is one of those things that sets the countries a little bit apart. 
my experiences coming from Canada to United States, starting a company in the United States with family and friends in Canada, was one that really maybe amplified the differences in perspective between the two cultures. Canada, I think, trends to the middle. It's a socialist country, and there's a lot put in place politically, culturally, to ensure that no one finds themselves on any extreme and right. everyone's mostly taken care of and, and is doing okay. The United States, by comparison, tends to be a country of extremes. Mm -hmm. You find incredibly wealthy people here. You also find incredibly poor people here. And opinions tend to be very polarized as well. Um, <laughs> to say the I, least. I, to say the least. Now, how I saw that reflected in my own entrepreneurial journey is at the very beginning with the, with the prospect that one should start a company at all. And I remember when I was first entertaining the idea at the time of, of founding Platelet Biogenesis and coming to my friends and family in Canada and telling them about what I wanted to do. And, and mind you, I was a professor at Harvard Medical School at the time, had a very stable career. I, I had quite a few grants in, in place, so I was in a good place. And proposing to them this idea of quitting my job, starting with zero money <laughs> on this vision that no one could really see, but I thought was important to pursue. And the, the, the immediate response, the first thing that was said pretty much by everyone I knew um, here in Canada was, you know, that's risky. You've got a stable job. You've got a stable profession. You really don't need to be doing this, and certainly not at this point in your mm -hmm. career. You know, why, why, why would you consider this? Which, you know, it, it was coming from a good place, and certainly no one wants someone, especially someone they love or care about, to be put out and put in a situation that may be harmful to them professionally or, or personally. But, um, but it was striking how different a response that was to the response I got on this side of the border with my American colleagues, uh, which as, you know, for those of you from the United States or, or have spent quite a bit of time here in the United States, you'll appreciate that the, the immediate response was, do it. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to be rich. <laughs> it's going to be amazing. You're going to be rich. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. just go for it. Right. And that that energy, that drive, that that tolerance for risk, that support of something that's very, very potentially dangerous, but exciting and, and paradigm changing is the energy one needs to launch a new venture. I, I will say, and, and I'll, I'll add this last little piece here, for any entrepreneurial exercise, and especially for biotech where the risk is really high, mm -hmm. the, these tend to be polarized outcomes. A biotech company isn't kind of successful or kind of not successful. It is either successful or it fails. And there's very little in between. And because of that, and because of the fact that 99% of the interactions you will have as a leader leading a new venture in a space like this are going to be ones where people are telling you or pointing out all of the different reasons why your venture is not going to succeed, most of which are appropriate things that are being pointed out. Because there is so much negativity that you have to sort of push through, you need that sort of support. You need that energy. You need that drive to, to help see you through it. And I, I don't think it's an accident that cultures like the, the culture here in the United States end up breeding a certain class of entrepreneur and end up being places where a lot of these very large large companies are able to grow and, and propagate because they're supported by an underlying culture that values risk-taking and is supportive of the, the entrepreneurial journey that a, that a leader inevitably needs to take to Absolutely. see an idea to mm -hmm. fruition. No, thank you so much for 
for that, Jonathan. I kind of jumped into this because I know you guys weren't quite expecting me to bring in the Canadian-U.S. kind of contrast. I jumped into it to give some kind of ground to understand these risk tolerance. And one of the things that I've known Jonathan for almost a decade and a half, and one of the things that I really appreciated about him is his uh, his boldness, his, de- his willing to take on new exciting things for the sheer fact that is exciting. But we do understand that there is a lot of people that don't have a whole lot of high risk tolerance, right? And when we think about jumping into a venture, the culture matters significantly, at least from my experience. And when you're jumping into a new entrepreneurial venture, if you're not surrounding yourself with other individuals that are encouraging and helping you to move towards like because you do hear a lot of negative pushback towards these quote exciting ventures where people are constantly with the best of intentions trying to help you to say all right should you take this on this is a lot of risk you're like <laughs> you're gonna go into debt yeah. you're like is this something that like why can't you just have a much more safe career they don't understand that kind of of mentality. And so most often an entrepreneur or even just even an independent investigator has to push up against the status quo. And so I brought this up because one of the things that I, I loved about pairing and partnering up with Nick is because he does have this uh, that same kind of element and same kind of fervor for exciting new ventures that not many people are willing or daring to take on. And I, I brought on Jonathan because he's gone through this several, <laughs> several folds to kind of almost like reinvent his career as a scientist on several different folds. And he's gone through this journey. So I kind of want to direct it a little bit, Jonathan, to what were some like core elements of being uh, a Harvard faculty, just even making that transition from a Harvard faculty to your first biotech? Like, just to be forthright, you had no prior entrepreneurial experience with starting a company. Is that correct? No, I hadn't done anything like this before. And certainly my academic training up until that point was entirely scientific. <laughs> so I'd never even taken a business class before or, or a finance class, which in retrospect would have been very useful. <laughs> but, you know, we, we were touching on culture and my background, I, I was born in, in Buenos Aires in Argentina. I grew up in Canada. I come from a very deep social background. And I think that's important to note here too, because a lot of attention is often placed on the face of a company. And certainly if you're a CEO or if you're a principal investigator of an academic lab, you're the one that most people see. You're the one that's speaking on behalf of the lab and you're usually generating the the most media attention. But it's important to recognize that a research lab like a company, like any new venture, is a team effort. And some of the roles that one plays in the company are forward-facing, like a lead singer in a band. Uh, And some of the roles are behind the scenes, like Pablo here, keeping the sound for the uh, for the podcast, but not any one role is more important than the other. And actually, all of the roles need to work together to facilitate success. I say that because a long-winded uh, response to your question, but one of the very interesting observations I went through during my academic journey was recognizing that while science should be cooperative, and I was definitely brought up on a culture of science being a collaborative effort. How science is practiced within an academic setting tends to be very isolating and a very individual practice. Yes, a lab is a team 
comprised of many different people contributing to a greater whole. Um, and, and that team dynamic does very much exist in the lab. But labs within academic settings tend to be islands in and unto themselves. And they try to erect barriers to protect their science and keep others out and, and do something unique and different from everybody else. And it was that sentiment that resonates particularly well with me. That's not how I envisioned science needed to be done. Ironically, what I was always told going through a traditional academic training, a, a traditional academic career, was that industry is the is where one strikes off as a lone wolf and really collaborative science happens in an academic setting. But my experience turned out to be entirely opposite, actually. I found there to be a lot more flexibility, a lot more desire to collaborate with personalities that really went into industry because they enjoy team-based programs team-based work, and how you organized a research team within a, a private uh, company setting is actually a lot more collaborative an experience than one would same research program within an academic lab. And part of that has got to do with the career trajectories of the people involved. I mean, within an academic setting, by necessity, you're giving individuals, postdocs, graduate students, projects that they own because they need to differentiate themselves from other others in that lab and certainly from their PI in order to enable them to create a brand of their own and let them strike out with the idea that they will become professors in their own rights. Within a company, it is understood that everyone that's joining the company is working collectively for the greater good or the mission of that company. And so no one is granted an individual project that separates them from everybody else, but they're always seeing a portion of a much larger project that requires input from many different parties. And so the science ends up being a lot more collaborative. And that was something that I enjoyed and was a, a major proponent in my stepping away from my academic lab to pursue my science within a private setting. So let me say, let's just kind of summarize it a little bit. So you feel as though that the academic training of collaboration helped you to kind of parlay that into an industry type of setting. And you kind of went in that uh, along that vein. But you also had brought up a note of branding uh, or, or some kind of like self-awareness of your sets of skills or the things that you do exceptionally well. How did you come to understand that? I mean, we're not necessarily equipped with these types of terminology or ideas about how to view one's career. How did you come about that coming from an academic into an industry? Did you stumble upon it? Or was there somebody who said this is something developing? And how would you even like advise a, like academics to view their careers in that sentiment? I learned everything I've ever learned the hard way. But <laughs> I feel like that's the only way any of us yeah. learn anything. Look, the, the reality is that no one is born being a principal investigator. No one is born being a CEO. One learns the job and and given the fact that the job is such a unique job, one learns the job on the job. So you don't learn how to be a PI until you are a PI and then realize that there's a whole lot you need to learn very, very quickly. 
I think the expectation that you should figure it out by yourself is a false one. I think one needs to recognize that we that that no one accomplishes anything by themselves, and a lab is a, a composite of of people. And some of those people are front and center, and some of those people are behind the scenes. And some of the people that are behind the scenes that unfortunately don't get enough credit are the people that help the PI or the leader learn how to be a leader and advance that training as quickly as they possibly can because the learning curve needs to be steep. You don't really have a, a lot of time to figure things out before you're being asked to deliver into that role. And so recognizing that you probably shouldn't be going at it alone, but should be drawing from experiences of others, be they advisors, consultants, uh, executive coaches, wh whomever. But the point is that there, there are resources that you can draw on to learn those skill sets faster than you would on your own. The, the challenge, of course, is that for the most part, those resources people draw on to be able to learn things much more quickly than they otherwise would are hidden and they're very rarely talked about. And so when you're an outsider looking in, you're a postdoc mm -hmm. getting their first position uh, or you know a, a, a young founder building their first company. Mm -hmm. You look at the models in front of you, successful CEOs or successful academics, and it looks like they've done it all by themselves because they're the only yeah. one in the spotlight. Um, and that's just not true. It's the spotlight that's <laughs> fixated on them. Uh, but there's a whole team behind them that's just hiding there in the in the in the fringes of that spotlight, no less important than the PI who's who's capturing the right. Light. And I'm gonna just go right after the question that we're we're trying to get to for today, and and it's the coaching aspect. And you, you even said it, executive coach. You've had a, a unique experience, at least in in my opinion, of being able to bring up and form two successful biotech companies so far. The first one was without a coach and the second one was with. What would you say are just the major challenges that have been overcome the second time around while having this sounding board for you and someone to talk to you that is outside of this team. That's exactly what it is, is a sounding board. And a sounding board turns out to be a very important thing. Um, even if its sole job is to echo what, what you've just said back to you. Because the, the truth is that the, the role is a very isolating one and a unique one in that unless you're in that role, you don't really understand the, the pressures or issues driving a lot of the stress, anxiety that come with the decisions that you you need to make. Now, you'll have friends that you should talk to and, and certainly should talk to, but those people typically aren't occupying the same role you are. And there's a lot that they just can't understand having not been in that position. And likewise, there are employees or students that work underneath you, which you really just can't speak to a lot of the challenges that you're facing because there are certain things that you really shouldn't be disclosing to them. And so what's left? You know, if you have a partner, of course, you know, you should be speaking to your partner, but it comes a point where your partner is tired of, of hearing your <laughs> <Yeah>. shit, <laughs> for, for lack of a better word. Um, and also they, they're dealing with yeah. their own things and it's, it's sometimes too much to put on their shoulders when you're needing to talk about these things on a regular basis, like a, on a, a daily, maybe weekly basis. And so having someone with experience managing 
and situations like the ones that you're facing, experiences with personalities like the ones you're engaged with that can offer that sounding board that are contracted to you. So it's it's their job. You're not putting them out. This is this is their responsibility to be there and listen to you and then offer perspective. And that perspective ends up being really important because sometimes the perspective is everything you're saying is right. Just take a breath, you know, and let's let's think about how to act on this information. And sometimes the perspective is, you know, what you're what I'm hearing from you is crazy. <laughs> take a step back <laughs> and uh, and just let, let me repeat what you just said back to you, because, you know, you're going down a path that will result in action. And maybe that's I would like you to critically assess that action before you take it, you know, and, and everything in between. The, the, po- the point is that it, it is really important. There's a lot of value in having someone to talk to, to model ideas out, it just get sometimes things off of your chest, uh, hear an unbiased third party perspective on a situation that you're experiencing one way, but could be perceived a different way. And where that person is someone that you trust, that has experience in the area that you're in, that has seen a million of these problems, challenges, situations before, and can offer you also some perspective from experience that can factor into your decision making. Ultimately, what results from that are better decisions that you end up making as a leader uh, that end up being of benefit to the company that you're leading. So yeah, it, I mean, it was a very different experience um, in my first company versus my second company without an executive coach versus with an executive coach. But I honestly strongly recommend working with an executive coach on all ventures. And I certainly won't be going back to going at it on my own. It's just, it, it, there, there's too much to gain right. from working with someone to to go back to that. Here's here's a, a follow-up for you though, because I, I think that this will come up. You know, I, so many people talk about the struggle and the difficulty being part of the entrepreneurial experience. And what we're basically talking about is a tool that is making it easier. Do you think that having a coach guide you through processes and having someone that's had experience doing that is taking away from some of those elements and not reducing the experience, but significantly changing it in a way that might not be the same had you have gone through it with more difficulty the first time. An executive coach will not make the job easier. The job is a difficult job, but they do provide context for you. They allow you to examine situations more critically. They allow you to pull emotion out of situations that you're experiencing or sometimes inject them in where they may be lacking and allow you to reframe situations so that you can see them from a different perspective. An executive coach is not a more experienced CEO that can give you direction and help you make decisions uh, that you otherwise wouldn't make. If they could be a better CEO than you, they would be the CEO. They're they're not. They're there to support you. You're still the you're still the CEO. You're everything still rests on you and they're not going to contradict your gut. They're not going to contradict your decisions. All they're going to do is provide a a resource for you to share experiences with them, hear yourself and gain perspective into the the circumstances that you find yourself in. And it, it does add a different perspective. It adds a, an ability to critically assess situations in a different light that 
will then make your decision-making process a better one and should result in the direction you end up choosing for the company to be based on a little bit more substance than it would have been otherwise. One of the things we've been experiencing, Jonathan, is the fact that coaching, executive coaching, these elements of or tools that young leaders are experiencing is in an academic setting. It's not as common. It's not as commonplace. We see it more in the uh, business uh, industry or even even in all other industries. But academia still seems a little reticent on this aspect. Usually we get feedback like that's what your mentors are for. That's what HR is for. How would you frame that to an academic on the coaching aspects? Well, again, I mean, it's a cultural element of academic research, this idea that you should be at it on your own. And quite frankly, it doesn't need to be that way. Now, the reason executive coaches aren't proposed as a resource that is accessible to you is mostly because the people who you are approaching for recommendations on how to deal with situations <laughs> have never worked with them and don't don't know what they are. And so it's hard for them to recommend something that they have no familiarity with. But effectively what's happening there is a propagation of the same issue, which is they got no support and the, the organization they built, they somehow managed to build through much more difficulty on their own and are now advising you to do the same thing when better models have been proposed tested and found to work. Uh, and quite frankly, you know, there's there's enough money involved in biotech and enough resources invested in new ventures that all sorts of different models have been tested to identify what things work, what, what enables companies to be more successful and reach success faster. And through an exercise of iteration and improvement testing, the model that industry is working off of is the the one that is most efficient or known to be most efficient at the at the current time to enable young ventures to be successful quickly. And so I think if what you're looking at is how to launch a lab as efficiently as possible and do that as effectively as possible on as short a time scale as possible, you should be looking to areas where a tremendous amount of resources have already been expended to try to figure out how to do that. And I, I don't think you're going to find that um, executive coaching as a concept is foreign in private industry. If anything, I don't know of an executive CEO that hasn't worked with an executive coach in the past. So the, the idea that you wouldn't use one is crazy, uh, but, but, it, but is unique to a space that an academic space that sort of been locked in time with uh, uh, and has patterns of management propagated by experiences of previous generations. And we really need to break that. And the idea that there isn't enough money for this in academia is just simply false because we do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you guys are a great example. And things that allow the science to be more successful are great places to invest capital, right? Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, what any... PI should be worried about is putting resources into things that increase the likelihood of their program being successful. Mm -hmm. 
And this is one of those things that uh, really does make a difference. Because a lab is so dependent on the performance of the PI and its core or key employees, that PI and their key employees need to be functioning at peak efficiency. So any dollar invested in improving their output is a dollar well spent. Yeah, I'm kind of glad you brought that up because as far as the cultural and like old ways of just the unfamiliarity of, of coaching. We had a client about a year ago and she had gone through the coaching experience and her division chair came up to her and she talked to the whole division about her performance. She's been doing exceptionally well. And she said that she attributed to staying focused and being on top of things through coaching. And some people were a little bit shy about it. Some people didn't know much. Her division chair came to her and was like, who's the number of your coach? <laughs> you could tell like he was secretive about it because he didn't want people to know. And it's there's this kind of like, I don't know, for the old schools, is there some kind of like stigma that you have to do it all alone or or worse? Because I think you, you and I talked a little bit about this, Jonathan, is that at a certain point when a, a senior faculty gets a coach, it's usually a, at them being reprimanded or them being so uh, bad at them. So they're assigned a leadership coach and stuff. Yeah, if you're being assigned a leadership coach, it's because there's a problem. The, the, whole, the whole point of engaging with a leadership coach at the very beginning is to avoid getting into a situation that will then require some, a, a third party to force someone on you, right? There are cultural differences. And maybe what we're talking about here is just a, a unique cultural perspective of academia here in the United States or Canada. You know, if we think about shrinks, for example, I know they hate that word, but <laughs> shrinks, for example, in Argentina, it's not considered a bad thing. It's actually, I don't know a single Argentine uh, in that country that doesn't have their person that some they go to. Yeah. yeah, some therapist, someone they go to and speak to on a regular basis. It's, it's, it's culturally strange not to have that and you'd be called out for it. But, you know, in a country like Canada or a country like the United States, it's not viewed like that at all. Uh, and people tend to be a lot more protective or, or secretive about their experiences with a therapist. But, but they're Therapists play a very important functional role. Now, executive coaches are not therapists. So that's not what I'm yeah. trying to, to suggest here at all. It's, You're speaking very to the cultural. It, yeah. yeah, it's a very different job, very different um, role. But, uh, but I'm, I, yeah, I'm speaking to the cultural, to the fact that I, I think there are areas like private industry where the concept of working with an executive coach is assumed and expected so much so that investors in early stage companies will engage the CEO very early about whether they're thinking or who they're working with in order to support them as, as they're developing in that role. So you're saying there's, there's kind of a stigma? I think that stigma certainly exists in academia. And I, I think it's not to the principal investigator's benefit. Do you think it's changing with time? I think a lot of things are changing with time. I think the idea that principal investigators from universities can step away from their academic labs to run or participate in private ventures, then jump back into academic settings, the big difference from the way careers developed in academia back in the day. And I think that exposure to what is outside of academia or the, the propagation of conversations they have with their academic colleagues is now introducing a lot of concepts like executive coaching, which are standard fare and common in other industries, uh, but are foreign 
or historically foreign academia and now introducing them back into academia. Uh, and so, yes, I, I think uh, this next generation or this newer generation of principal investigator academics is looking a little bit different um, than the previous generations. And I think they're pulling resources that have been available to others for a very long time, but mm-hmm. are, are new to academics. Now, I'm kind of glad that you're bringing up the fact that younger uh, investigators and younger entrepreneurs that are developing these new skills or actually adopting these new skills from different uh, different aspects of their own career trajectory. Because I do see, even from our perspective, Nick and I share this constantly, is that it's much less a, a mentor-mentee type of thing, but more of a peer mentorship where it's kind of cross-collaboration a lot of the younger faculty are saying we can't keep using the old ways of how we run these teams. Let's look to each other. What is working for you? What is working for this person? And they're coming together to develop these new. And I, we constantly tell even our clients that the leadership isn't always upward. It can also be laterally. It could be downwards. It could be the people that you're with and flattening that hierarchy has been a huge benefit for most uh, most individuals where they don't feel as though they they have to step out of bounds they if anything they feel as though they're contributing as a single part of a whole of a whole entity or a whole vision and we see this constantly but the academia is still a really old ways of the ivory tower the that's the currency there you know it is the the i mean yeah it's the the ivory tower but you know when you're i made tenure (laughs) this is i made it the top right but that that's (laughs) in in some cases that's the goal you know you're not looking at an industry or like a biotech company where the goal is to to be acquired or you know, if the vision is, is long, longer than that, you know, to get that product to market or the milestones just aren't that clear. It's, I feel like the milestones in, in academia are more about the individual, which is, you know, just kind of goes back to what Jonathan was saying earlier. It, it, the culture is to be individual. The thing about culture is that there is no right and there is no wrong. There is no best culture. And there have been examples of success where the goal was acquisition or the goal was reputation or the goal was economic output or the goal was to bring a transformative uh, technology to to, to bear. I, I don't know that there is a best model for anyone to follow. What what there is, though, is a recognition that an organization, a team, has got a culture. And one needs to understand what that culture is and what culture one wants to create or shape within that organization to foster a, a certain set of outcomes. You need to be, you need to recognize what your culture is, then lean into it and attract people that emulate that culture and maybe distance yourself from people that conflict with that culture. Executive coaching as a topic is recognizing that it is much more difficult to go at it alone when you have resources available to you that you can lean on and leverage to get possibly to the same place you would otherwise, but faster and with less pain. (laughs) 
it's not going to be for everyone. But the point is that there needs to be a recognition that these resources are available to you. And it needs to be an active decision to forego that help um, and make choose to go at it on your own because maybe that's your culture. You know, you said something earlier to your team that was really profound. You said that culture tends to be just an extension of the leader, the founders, those that actually uh, develop it. You have a really strong sense of self, uh, Jonathan, which is great. And I'm sure you've attributed this to even your upbringing and some of these aspects of uh, your own personal development. Can you speak a little bit to on some of the points of executive coaching and how that has helped kind of shape your own self-awareness of what are your strengths and weakness and what you genuinely feel as though the things that had contributed to the vision of what the cultural aspect should be. You know, it's a really interesting exercise when you're trying to understand your own culture and, and who you are even as a person is asking your team to tell you what the culture is. And what they will say is not always what you thought they would say, and sometimes <laughs> is completely misaligned with what you thought your culture was. Now, they're not wrong. They're, they're, seeing, they're describing what they're seeing and they're experiencing. But what is an issue is if what they're experiencing and what they believe the culture to be is misaligned with what you're experiencing and what mm. you believe the culture to be, because that suggests a lack of communication. Now, that's, that's on an organizational basis. The same is true on a personal basis. You see yourself as having certain strengths, certain weaknesses, being great at certain things, and needing help in others. But that's your perspective. And interestingly, when you ask someone else what they see as your strengths and weaknesses, how they see you perform, the response you get back may actually be very different from the response you would have given. And an executive coach is a more formal way of soliciting that input. And again, it's what, what they're telling you, they're seeing of you is not wrong. The issue is if there's a misalignment between what they're telling you you are like and what you think you are like, because you are acting on a belief that you are this thing. And if the world is seeing you in a very, very different way, then you're not actually executing with the right information, or you may be executing with an incomplete data set. And that's going to affect, you know, the actual outcome versus your perceived outcome for any decision that you make. So this exercise in understanding your culture is also one of understanding yourself so that when you're stepping into a situation, your, your projection of what you are great at and what you should be able to do is in line with what you're great at and what you should be able to do. And you know that the way you're communicating is being received as you're intending it to be received and not being taken in a very different light. Yeah, we had a, a client a while back ago talk to and describe executive coaching in detail dealing with her own imposter syndrome. And so I definitely want to ask you a little bit about the imposter syndrome, because I think a lot of uh, younger faculty struggle with this. But she described the imposter syndrome and working with the executive coach is kind of, she's like, it's like a burger hanging from her face. 
because it's different when you have a complete stranger that comes and tells you, you know that it's all well and done, but you didn't expect that. There was no expectation. Really. But with an executive coach, the whole purpose of them is to ensure that there's not a booger hanging from your face. <laughs> that helped her to kind of gain some like perspective on taking the feedback in and how she had intended it to develop for herself. So this is one thing that helped her kind of look at like the imposter syndrome to develop that in kind of her own like safe space. Could you share a little bit about some of the ideas in and around like executive coaching and dealing with your own challenges with imposter syndrome? I'm not saying that you've struggled with imposter syndrome. By far, there's a lot of others that have uh, had more challenges. But at what points are certain feedbacks that has helped you or even you've advised others on how to deal with the imposter syndrome? It'd be crazy if you're not experiencing imposter syndrome. I mean, by definition, you're in a role where you're doing something that no one has ever done before and are surrounding yourself actively with people that are probably more intelligent than you with <laughs> much longer experienced careers uh, and successes under their belt. So yeah, it, 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 it's crazy if that self-doubt doesn't creep in. The issue is not that self-doubt creep in. The issue is whether that self-doubt becomes limiting to your ability to perform um, and holds you back from being the version of you you need to be to execute on what is inevitably an incredibly ambitious plan. What I think is very important to say about executive coaching in this regard is that not every executive coach is the same. And Hiring an executive coach is a very personal uh, engagement. It's one where you need to respect and you need to be able to relate with and trust the person that you're partnering with. They need to be someone who you can listen to and who you will take their feedback seriously, but aren't receiving that feedback as critical or, or damaging or insulting, but also aren't working with someone that whose you know feedback is just dismissed because it's 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 either not valued or you don't or, or not respected. It's a very fine balance and I think everyone ends up finding someone different that works for them. The important thing is that those pieces need to be there because it is a very different experience hearing from your worst enemy or someone who upsets you that you have a burger on your face. It elicits <laughs> a very different reaction than from someone mm -hmm. that you trust and is looking out for your best interest, right? One becomes a very confrontational response where you feel like that person is out to get you or pointing out flaws in you, which isn't really helpful or conducive to a healthy relationship in this regard. <laughs> and, and the other is someone who you feel is intrinsically in your corner, is out there to help you be a better you. And you can take that uh, feedback and do something actionable with it that will then improve your performance thereafter. Um, we're coming up to the end right now, the top of the hour, and kind of wanted to some like summarize like key points of some of the things that you have gotten from your own journey and executive coaching. And kind of, if you knew then what you know now, what would you tell the, the young uh, Jonathan Thon? jumping into this venture, which could have helped alleviate some of that intense journey. 
Certainly to lean more heavily on others. There are a lot of resources out there that will help make mm. the journey easier and provide context that you just don't have at the moment because you haven't been through the journey yet. I think executive coaching is an aspect of that. There are other aspects as well, but the, the point is that you need to reach outside of your environment, outside of your comfort zone, see what others are using and, and why. And mm -hmm. pull from those resources because at the end of the day, there's no reason why you should be going at this alone. And there are a, a lot of support systems in place that will help smooth certain aspects of the transition. And they won't necessarily make the outcome any different, but they'll allow you to arrive at that outcome sooner and maybe with fewer bumps and bruises than <laughs> you, you otherwise would experience. I, I mean, if those aren't great closing remarks, I don't know what, what isn't. Jonathan, thank you so, so much. Uh, what I will say is that this is the second time around. We had technical difficulties the first time. So thank you again so much for carving out another uh, period of time for us to, to speak. And finally, thank you once again for listening to another episode of the EQIQ podcast. If you'd like to hear more from Jonathan, he regularly shares his insight and goes into a lot more depth about practical advice and best practices in articles that he writes on Canada's University Affairs magazine website. It's called the Black Hole Archives. If you're a regular listener to our podcast, it's something that you would definitely enjoy. So I would highly suggest that you go check out those blog posts. Jonathan is also super committed to mentorship and loves giving back to our community. So we're going to go ahead and list his contact information in today's episode's show notes. If you'd like to reach out, please feel free to do so directly. Again, just go right onto the show notes. We'll have everything listed there. Finally, as always, if you'd like to hear more from Damien and myself, if you're interested in this type of coaching and would like to know more about it, please feel free to reach out to us. Go check out our other episodes, show notes, and a whole host of other information about EDC on our website at experimentaldesigns.com. I'm Nick. I'm Damien. This has been the EQIQ Podcast. Production. You want your dragon torching the whole, the whole thing. Kind of good to have like a hand of the king to kind of like bounce some of these decisions. <laughs> we can cut that out. <laughs>